Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Think Peace with me, Max Burnell. I've got an absolutely fascinating instalment for you this time round, as we'll be diving deep into the technical and philosophical aspects of AI. Shortly you'll be hearing from Mark Bishop, Professor of Cognitive Computing at Goldsmiths. With an esteemed career working in applied AI and neural networks, Professor Bishop currently leads the Tungsten Centre for Data Analytics and is former chair of the Society for the Study of Artificial Intelligence and Simulation of Behaviour, which is the largest AI society in the UK, and founded as it was in 1964, is the longest standing in the world. Despite devoting much of his professional career to artificial intelligence, Professor Bishop is renowned in some circles as an ardent AI sceptic and his views provide a stark contrast to those of Professor Sarnberg, who we heard from in episode 5. Now this is the longest instalment yet in the series, and we cover a lot of really interesting ground. From neural networks and the challenges of creating truly intelligent machines, to the philosophy and nature of intelligence and consciousness itself. So it might take a few listens to get the most from this conversation. But without further ado, I proudly present to you, Professor Mark Bishop, Think Peace, Episode 7. Okay, um, I'm Mark Bishop, Professor of Cognitive Computing here at Goldsmiths, University of London, and where I'm also Director of the Tungsten Centre for Intelligent Data Analytics. This is a relatively new centre, we're about a year and a bit old. that I and some colleagues put together um, last year. And our function is to research the application of artificial intelligence in problems to do with big data and analytics of large data sources. What my interests, my, my, my interests are very strongly now, as they have been for a considerable time, Uh, focused on the nature of intelligence, the nature of human intelligence, the nature of machine intelligence. Can machines be intelligent? Um, Building on from that, can we build machines that really replicate a mind with all its causal power? Can we build conscious machines? These are questions that interest me. Mm -hmm. To try and understand them, that's involved me going on a big lifelong journey to understand an area of, of science called cognitive science, which endeavours to try and piece together and understand and add insight about how the brain generates seemingly intelligent behaviour and how we perceive the world. So those, these, are, these are really big interests of mine. Um, in at the Tunison Centre, we're particularly interested in taking the very latest areas of AI, things that you might have heard of, like deep learning neural networks, um, Bayesian methods, hidden Markov methods, things of the technologies of that type and applying these to some fairly important commercial problems which actually sound very mundane but have really really big commercial impact. So I guess uh, and my role in this centre is I'm the director of the centre and uh, I'm not so involved at the coalface of driving forward the research that we do although I do take a, a small role in, in, in that area. My colleague at the moment, Dr John Harroyd, is, is really doing an amazing job at steering the centre um, academically. My role is kind of more a managerial role, 
to make certain that we've got everything that we need to get the job done and that the centre continues and hopefully expands. So I'm looking to bring in new finance to the centre, make certain the existing finance we've got is sufficient to cover our needs and uh, just the day-to-day management that's involved in running a centre of this size. Fascinating stuff. So you're right on the cutting edge of it. Hopefully so. We, we like to think we are yeah. anyway. Um, so perhaps a difficult one, I'm not sure, to start mm-hmm. with. What is artificial intelligence? There's an, I don't think that you'll find any one universally accepted definition of what AI is. And for that reason, I, I tend to opt towards a simple definition, and that's the science of engineering machines to do tasks that if they were carried out by humans, or by animals in some cases, we would say that involves a degree of intelligence. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, paradigmatically, we've got things like playing a strong game of chess. That's, these are tasks that throughout, I mean, AI's only been really going for about 60, 70 years as a discipline, but for nearly all that time, tasks like playing a strong game of chess have been paradigmatically associated with the subject. It's taken a long time, but now people are also doing acknowledging tasks like recognizing this as a cup. Mm or navigating a way around the room, um, or manipulating our bodies in certain ways, or just things as generally, as apparently simple as making sense of a visual world or understanding language, in scare quotes. People now realize that these are really fall well under the domain of AI, and actually these problems have turned out to be an awful lot something more difficult than problems such as playing a strong game of chess. Mm-hmm. So could you describe for us a very brief history of the really sort of major landmarks in AI? Uh, where did it all start and how did we get here? Obviously, the, the, any history I give you is going to be biased by my own interests. Um, but for me, I guess, uh, I like to think of, of AI starting in around 1948 when um, the English mathematician and polymath Alan Turing um, first began putting together what we would now think of as a computer program, but he, I don't think at that time he had a computer to run it on. It was an algorithm, if you like, for playing a simple game of chess. And um, Turing tried this out, not on a computer, but by literally hand in, in his mind and with bits of paper, calculating through that algorithm and playing a game of chess against some, mm. uh, against some human opposition. and. Um, this was an interesting development, A, because it showed that we can get mechanical means for playing something like chess, even though that, I think, Turing's technique was not the strongest chess playing algorithm that's ever been invented. Nonetheless, it could play. Prior to that, we had uh, rumours of chess playing machines, but they were things like uh, the Turk, and it's, these machines in, in history transpired, they were, weren't actually mechanical at all. The mechanical Turk, well, they were mechanical, but the the chess playing component of that was actually a human sitting in a box, it wasn't really a machine or a computational machine that was, that, was, that was playing the chess. But in Turing's case it was, and so Turing's achievement was admirable for being that, really that first attempt to, to, to think about a chess playing algorithm, but then more importantly in the context of a paper that he wrote in 1950 called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, Turing began to analyse what we now think of as the world of artificial intelligence, and it came up with this question, can a machine think? And Turing thought that this question was too vague to be really considered uh, scientific, and he proposed replacing it with a game. 
which has become known as the Turing test. And again, very briefly, the idea behind the Turing test is that Turing imagined a time when we could interact with a computer uh, in something using something akin to natural spoken language. And Turing imagined a situation, and he, he got the imagination of this partly from, from an old Victorian parlor game called the Imitation Game, uh, where the aim of the game is to have a man and woman in two different rooms and an interrogator and the interrogator purely by putting questions written on a piece of paper underneath the door to each of these people in these rooms looking at their answers had to work out the gender of which room the man was in which room the woman was in what made the game interesting is of course the respondents were allowed to lie so you couldn't say are you a man well you could say it but that person might say yes or no and you can't infer anything definitive from their initial answer it's quite an interesting game which i've played many times with my mm. students over the years and not trivial to do well at but you can do well at it as anybody who's played uh, i'm showing my age now but uh, one of the old text uh, adventure games that used to play on computers or in fact being involved in a large multi-user game on the internet now you often come across human characters or characters that are controlled by humans and people quite often, or more often than you might imagine, pretend to be people of a different gen gender. And not always, but you can, through repeated conversations with these people, I think many people can get a good guess as to whether someone's genuinely being controlled by a man or genuinely being controlled by a woman. And that was the essence of the imitation game. And what Turing did is said, let's imagine what would happen if we replaced one of the human responses in one of the rooms with a computer. Can the interrogator identify which room has the computer in and which room has the human in as reliably as they were able to guess the gender when they had a man and woman in each of these rooms. And that was the test and Turing famously thought we would get machines that could uh, that would uh, do uh, about 70% on that task by the year 2000. And I think he was a little bit optimistic there. But in a sense, the inspiration for this this game, I think, came from his reflections on the chess computer that he thought about a few years earlier, um, because he wondered if you played a game of chess against a, a human or a machine, whether you'd be some way of telling just from the moves it made whether, which one was the human and which one was the machine. And uh, it's interesting that in that context, when Kasparov famously lost to Deep Blue, IBM's Deep Blue program, and Deep Blue went on to be the, effectively the world champion, there was a particular move that really disturbed Kasparov and he went psychologically downhill and the rest of this, there was a series of games and he went downhill after that. Because this move he felt, I think he's on record saying something like it was an alien intelligence mm. that did this, he was really yeah. shocked by this. Um, and even to this day, he now believes not so much it's an alien intelligence, he seems to be of the more conspiratorial mindset where he thinks that uh, um, this machine wasn't carried, this move wasn't carried out by a machine but by a team of human uh, chess players who surreptitiously filtered in uh, a human move into the into mm. what should have been a, a computer move, but that's a that's a different anecdote and a different story. So I don't know whether that's 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 in a very roundabout way. Mm. Um, uh, so we sort of started with Turing, really sort of starting to think about it. Of course, Turing widely regarded as being sort of the godfather of modern day computing, yeah. the universal Turing machine. Absolutely. Um, and it was right in its inception then that we started thinking about, well, what can we get this to solve? So chess was an obvious one, mm. um, broadly sort of recognised as being an intellectual feat for humans. So people sort of set their sights on chess and then IBM came along when did you, in the 80s, did you say? Um, Deep blue? 
I'm sorry, I've forgotten the so, date. Somewhere, I, I, I would, I would imagine it was, it was, it was in the nineties, actually. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm shamefully I've forgotten the <laughs> So once chess was beaten, then where did where did people working on these problems look? Well, Go was really the next big game challenge after chess. Everyone realizes that to do well at Go is is much more complicated game than chess. But as I hinted to in my earlier answer, that there was another set of problems that people were beginning to try and address with AI. And these were problems that seem to the man and woman in the street simpler, you know, making sense of a visual image, being able to uh, uh, transcribe what people are saying reliably to give something that's like an approximation of what people say in one language into another language. To be able to navigate around a room, to get machines to autonomously drive. These these were other problems that AI scientists were turning their attention to. And they turned out to be an awful lot more difficult than people had first imagined. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that computing started out from the world of mathematics, very mathematically driven, led people, and a lot of math people, cliche, but I think it's, there's certainly going to be truth in this, interested in games, that tended to sort of drive the research agenda, I feel, in the early days. Um, things that, uh, everyday things, having common sense knowledge of the world, for example, another big problem. Um, these things, I think mathematicians kind of look down on. Obviously we can see, we can navigate, and they didn't seem to be problems that involved that much intelligence, but of course they, they, they do. Mm-hmm. So when you ask what's the next big problem, well, in the world of game playing, I would say, uh, go, but I think there are a lot of other big problems, grand challenges if you like, in, in AI and computing that people have turned their uh, attention to since um, uh, since the Deep Blue match and I, I think these are things that are now becoming to, we now begin to see fruit of them one is autonomous vehicles getting robots to drive cars in rich complicated environments like cities and on roads where there are humans around that if they crunched into would be quite catastrophic that's one area and part of to get machines that can do well at that one the task is trying to understand visually what's going on in a scene these are areas that a lot of huge amount of research effort has gone into in, in the last well for a very long time but in particular over the last 20 odd years mm-hmm. so games were sort of they're a good way of sort of showcasing what these things were capable of but it was neat in the fact that they were very clearly defined. Yeah. You could very obviously win or lose at them. Yeah. Um, and they're within a sort of sandbox, we might be able to say, you know, it was um, a very contained system, whereas the real world is... Well, very famously... Not more difficult. Uh, there's a report around 1974 called the Lighthill Report into AI, uh, commissioned by the UK government, if I remember rightly, all the research councils. And um, it was kind of sceptical about what AI might deliver. And, and the, one of the phrases that began to be bandied around then was that AI was being used on what was majority known as toy problems. So that we could solve little, very simple games in the lab, but you th- try throwing AI, AI solutions at any real complexity of the world. And certainly at that point in time, it didn't do very well and people couldn't easily see how it might begin to do very well. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, the messy real world has, has been has been a challenge for AI. Yeah. So 
What was the real sort of breakthrough there? Was it getting the systems that were able to um, able to adapt and learn? Um, was that a no? We've had learning machines. If we go back to the beginning of AI, almost from its earliest days, people saw that there were at least two different ways we could try and build artificial intelligence systems. One was to try, one view said the best, the easiest way to do this is try to look, what we, we know that humans are pragmatically intelligent, or they can be. So the easiest way to build an intelligent machine is to try and understand how human brains work, that was perceived as being the root of intelligence in humans, and then to try and see if we can replicate that learning behaviour in machines, and that led to the development of things called artificial neural networks. Mm -hmm. These are, in quotes, learning machines, although, again, I'm, I'm slightly ambivalent about the, the use of the term learning there, that's something we might come on to later. And the other approach is, well, intelligence is fundamentally, some people believed, I don't, but some people believe intelligence is fundamentally a rule-governed operation, and if we can encapsulate the rules that underpin intelligent action, we can then build an intelligent machine by encapsulating these rules in the machines with rules for intelligent action. Um, and these were the two different ways that AI initially started working on, and initially both of them, was, both of these, uh, until sort of, certainly until the mid-60s, you had people working on both of these areas. In the mid-60s, you had relatively impoverished computing power by today's standards. And a few things happened in the 60s um, that meant that we entered what became the first artificial neural network winter when people deserted the field of artificial neural network research in droves and flocked towards other approaches to building intelligent machines, which at that point in time were the rule, predominantly these rule-based methods. Such that by the time I started doing my PhD in the late, in, in the early 80s, there was literally a handful of people in the world, possibly four or five people, um, seriously engaging in neural networks. Mm. People had left the, the subject. Why did people leave, leave the area? Well, two reasons. One was that in terms of what you could achieve in the 60s and early 70s with artificial neural networks, was very very little. If you if you had a neural network, you could only simulate very simple neural networks, not many neurons, uh, simulated neurons in them. You could do things, you, you, you really impoverished tasks like try to say whether a, a line was at a certain angle, for example, if you're looking at a, a psychological task. Not particularly if you're a young postgrad working in the computer department. And some of your mates are working on rule-based AI and they can write programs that can play adventure games or play Star Trek and mm. play chess. Mm. Uh, with, with the limited computing resources, we can get AI, AI programs that can do those tasks. And if I'm working in artificial neural networks, all I can do is work out whether a line's at a certain angle. Mm. So the, uh, in academic research, the people doing most of the research are postgraduate students. And if that research area is not deemed that exciting by that community, it's not so surprising that lots of people move to areas where they do perceive there is great scope for advance. So you have, that was one of the drivers that caused people to, to leave neural networks. More immediate results. More immediate results. We could do more with the limited computing power that was available at the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was one. The other one was the publication of a book by Seymour Papa and Marvin Minsky called Perceptrons. And... Um, there are many ironies in the publication of this book. 
But what one of the things it did, it was a very math, it was a logical sort of mathematical treatise on what could be achieved by neural networks, and in particular they analysed the power of what were known as single layer perceptron devices. So neural networks that only had one layer of adaptable nodes between their input and outputs. And they proved that these devices could not possibly do some very, very simple things like work out the, what's called the parity of a number or determine whether there's only one, whether there's an odd number of objects in a scene. Tasks that a five-year-old child could do very, very simply. And so we had, on the one hand, a set of proofs about what could be achieved. Formally, that we showed that we, you couldn't solve what are called non-linearly separable problems with these single layer perceptrons. So they really put a bit of a formal mathematical critique on what people could achieve with the types of neural networks that were around at the time. Because at that point in time, the technology was such that nobody had done the math and the computing to allow us to teach, in scare quotes, neural networks with more than one layer of computing nodes between the input and output. That, they were the only game in town. And there you had Minsky and Papa showing this class of neural networks can't do very, very many really basic things. So they're not very, it didn't seem very, very interesting. On the other hand, you saw that people working in other approaches to AI, these rule-based methods with the same computing power could do some quite exciting things. So I think the combination of Seymour Papa and Minsky's critique coupled with what we could do using other techniques that led people to desert the field of neural computing for a long time. Uh, and that was the world that I entered when I started doing my doctorate studies. And a, an anecdote that lived with me, and was actually a driver uh, being a bolshie-minded kid, I suppose, as a young postgrad. I, I went to a, a, um, a computing lab at Reading. I was working in the Sondex department. And the guy there said, oh, what's your research in? And when I said neural networks, he said, oh, didn't Minsky and Papo prove that was a load of nonsense in the 60s? And all the research associates fell about laughing that you could have anyone so stupid as to be wanting to do a PhD in neural computing. They were hoping, of course, that that would persuade me not to work in that area. It had the, exactly the opposite effect and, and drove me even more passionately that, to try and get involved and try to prove these buggers wrong and do some interesting things with neural computing. And then I was fortunate enough that in, I think, the second, my second or third year as a postgrad, uh, again at Oxford, we had a massive conference at Oxford. Um, still to this day, one of the most exciting academic events I've ever been to. Uh, it was, uh, there had just been announced that this team from America, there's a Brit involved in it as well, Rummel Hart, Hinson and McClellan had developed a learning rule for multi-layer neural networks back propagation. So for the first time we were able to teach in Scarecrow's neural networks with more than one layer between input and output and such neural networks did uh, were not subject to the same critiques that Minsky and Pape had published in the 60s. So at last people thought hurrah we'll be able to get these, new, these neural networks may well be able to do some quite interesting things. So I'm getting taken down to this conference by a really lovely man, a professor of psychology at Reading called Philip Smith and um, we went together to this conference and um, the, it was hosted by I think the Experimental Psychology Society at Oxford. Uh, I had booked a fairly, a very large lecture room, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm probably between 500 and 1,000 people in the lecture room, huge. Mm. It sold out. So they thought, well, we'll put the Eurospill in the second lecture room. That was also very large. 
packed out. By the time Philip and I arrived, we were in a second overspill lecture room <laughs> watching proceedings on video screens. Uh, to this day, I've never been to an academic event yeah. that's been so popular. There are people all over the country coming to this because it had a huge impact. In fact, in the world of, of AI and cold science, I think those books that the Rumble Hatton and Dumbledore published is called the Parallel Distributed Processing Volumes are some of the most successful texts, uh, academic texts in, in, in AI they've ever been published. They were just flying off the shelves. Mm. Tens of thousands of editions were sold. And it made a really big splash. Um, and so people at that point started taking neural computing a bit more seriously again after that gap where they'd been, where it was almost like a dirty word to say you were working in neural networks. So sorry, what, what sort of data are we talking about here in, on the timeline? Uh, in the, uh, in the early 80s, mm-hmm. I can't recall the date of the, of the conference. So there was a big fundamental shift when, yeah. when people worked out how to get multi-layered neural, neural networks. networks. Yeah. And so this is this, this is this deep, deep no, learning. No, that's no, a much okay. data. Sorry, sorry. Um, uh, but it's working towards that yeah, way, yeah, is it? Yeah. Uh, it, it, I can go into the technicalities of why uh, <laughs> the, the two things are different. Basically, the, the, the learning method that we, was talked about by the PDP group called backpropagation learning um, is not so good at learning very deep networks. A deep network is a network that's got lots of layers between the input and output, not just one, not just two, but many layers. Yeah. And it's not very good at learning them because the, it, it, with every layer, you, with backpropagation uh, that you build into your network, the amount of adjustment the learning scheme suggest you make every time you're training it gets smaller and smaller and smaller so the more layers you have the again it grows kind of like a hugely amount of learning teaching you have to give it to get it to do anything and it gets very problematic when you have kind of big networks unless they're very very tiny little ones with one or two loops on each layer um so sorry just to clarify so could you give us a very quick uh, rundown of very quickly neural networks yep. uh, and um perhaps say how that relates in context to human brain and say so these are all very very big questions you're asking yeah sorry the technicalities are simple actually but the, the implications of them are very deep mm. but I'd be delighted to try and do that so yeah a neural network is a style of computing that's modelled by the experiential style of problem solving we see in humans. So typically in humans, when we do something, we might be, we might be taught to do it and learn over, over a period of time. Um, and that's to be contrasted in computational terms uh, by the algorithmic method of problem solving, where we write a computer program explicitly to solve a task in a certain way. Mm. I suppose the problem with that is that you have to absolutely define it in the first place. Yeah, you have to know the set of rules, the computer program that will solve, that will generate the behaviour that you're interested in. The neural networks, the idea is that we give them some lots and lots of training examples. If this input, that's what the output of the network should be. And we have lots, we have what's called a training set, which is typically thousands of such input-output pairs. And you training consists of presenting these particular inputs, desired outputs to your neural network, one after the other, and then making tiny adjustments to the network itself. Now, what the network is, what the neural network is, is a 
collection of processing nodes that are very loosely modelled on the behaviours of brain neurons and roughly what they do for each one of these nodes it'll have a set of inputs and what the, new, the simulated neuron does it says it will look at the strength of input coming to it on each of its inputs and add them up and then it will apply some function to that sum of its inputs so it will do what's called a weighted sum of its input and then apply a function called an activation function to that value and the output of the activation function will then be the, the uh, output of that simulated neuron. So each neuron has a set of, of, of tunable parameters associated with it, which we call weights. And these are the connection strengths between that neuron and the neurons that precede it in the neural network. So it decides the path that the information travels in the system. Yes, so if there's a weight of zero, no information is going to come along. If there's a weight of one, it will, that will multiply by one the output of the node it was connected to. So each neuron does this weighted sum of inputs and then applies an activation function and that produces the output to that node. When we're teaching the neuron that what we're doing is making adjustments to the weights such that the collection of neurons as a whole, you hope, will eventually learn to model the particular training set that you're using. So that's, that's what neural network learning in general, you can think of it as doing, doing something like that. So you're never explicitly telling the system this is how you do it. You're, you're instead giving it examples that it yeah. can look at and in a roundabout way, whether we call it learning or not, yeah. <laughs> might be problematic, but it essentially uh, learns how to solve. It, it, it interestingly adjusts its internal parameters so that it, if, you're t if your training goes well, at the end of the training process, you will have a good approximation mm -hmm. to the training data that you've given it. So that if I at random pick one of the elements of the training set, feed that as input to the network, the numbers I'm going to get from the output of the neural network will be pretty close to what the values we specified them mm -hmm. should be. Mm -hmm. So if, if you manage to learn the function, that's what you hope is going to happen. That's one thing you hope is going to happen. People also then hope that when we give the network, that if all it could do was learn to approximate a particular finite set of input-output patterns, that would be a little bit interesting, but not hugely interesting. What was exciting people is the idea of A, interpolating, so given two elements of training data, um, say that what, uh, let's imagine the, the input to this neural network has only got one input value. So it's got one, in, one input coming to this neural network. Say we have one bit of training data that has a value on this input of one, and another, and a desired output of seven, say, and another training value that has an input of two, and a desired output of 13. What we would hope the neural network will do, and this is this is going to correspond to some function that we're interested in. If we give it a value of one and a half, it will produce an output that would be an output that would fit the function that we're interested in modeling. Mm -hmm. That's the the wishful thinking that that attracted people to neural networks in the first instance. Now I say wishful thinking. You can at this point begin to see another element of my skepticism about about AI neural computing because if you think about this mathematically. There's actually an infinite number of values for values that are not particularly defined, specifically defined in the training set. So I trained it on input one and input two and then presented it with a, an input one and a half. No one at all that network what it should output given an input one and a half. And it transpires there's an infinite number of outputs it could have. Why should you choose one over the other? It's just like magic pixie dust effectively. And so the very idea that the neural network can magically give you the correct output is, is kind of bizarre. 
And that's even on the task of what's called interpolating between known points. Mm. It gets even more magical when you, the other thing that neural network engineers hoped in the early days is that this neural network, a trained neural network, would be able to extrapolate to values beyond that fell outside of the range of training exemplars that you presented it in training. And again, there's an infinite number of values it could have. Why should, it, why should you say one value is correct and the other is not correct? Well, it's only if that value matched what you wanted the network to do. Then in some sense, you could say, wow, it's, it's got it right. But how the hell is the network going to know to adjust its ways to give you that value as opposed to any other? This is a critique that was first mentioned by the Dreyfus brothers on a paper called Making the Mind Versus Modeling the Brain. And I think it's a very astute problem when people start to read a little too much into neural networks, into their interpolation and extrapolation procedures. You've got to really think what you're getting neural networks to do. Um, uh, I think there's a degree to, to over, over the cake a little bit on what these things can do. So once the system is trained, then you're then you're able to introduce it into sort of real world situations where um, it's it's able to achieve a result that you haven't instructed it in any way. You've you've essentially taught the, the system to be yep. able to tackle the problem, yeah. And then afterwards, it sort of knows that whether it knows or not in a philosophical way is a yeah. different. Number. Absolutely. And the claim is, the always the claim that's wheeled out when people make grand claims in the world of cognitive science about neural networks is that this will, you know, will understand the problem domain and it will give us answers that are the kind of answers that we want. Um, and that's when we say it's generalised successfully. It's generalised beyond, given it this training data, but this neural network is generalised and giving us sensible answers for values that are not in that training data, whether they're interpolations between points or extrapolations, it's still generalising. Mm -hmm. And if what people hope is the, these magical techniques will be able to generalise successfully. Mm -hmm. um, and this, 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 this is, that was the big white hope of, of, of neural computing. And it was thought that you know, training, give the network appropriate training data, and it would find patterns in this training data um, for itself that would, in some way, correspond to the sorts of patterns that humans might find in those mm -hmm. in those training data. So I can give you two anecdotes that might flesh this out. In my postgraduate days, thinking along these these lines. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting? It's a very simple problem, I thought, at the time, to build a neural network that can learn to add one to a number. So I'll give it the training data of all the numbers between one and 100, integers between one and 100, sorry. So I give it one, and it will output two. This is, so first element training data, input one, output two. Second element, input two, output three. Third element of the training set, input three, output four. You get the idea. Yeah. So I give it a big load of training data, and I repeatedly present this training data until the neural network correctly learns. I give it two, it outputs three. I give it 47, it outputs 48. Wow. This network seems to have learned to add one to a number. This is amazing. You know, that's, you know, that has it really learned. Like, like I've got a two-year-old daughter and she's beginning to learn to count. Is this akin in any way to what my daughter's doing when she's learning to count? Well, I suggest that the following uh, a, a result shows you that it's not because when I, as soon as I start giving this network numbers that fell outside the training data like 237 the output I got 
was something like 238.005. Now, whatever else, when you see that number, whatever else you wrote that network is doing, it's not adding one to a number. Mm. Anyone, any child, once they've learned what add one is, will always be, you give them a number, and they can always add one to it, and reliably give you, they don't put a 0.005 on the end of it. That seems to have fundamentally, to me, demonstrated that the old network has not understood the add one mm. operation. I hasten to, I should also, to be fair, add that there are neural networks that can, in quotes, do that add one problem now if you engineer things in the same way, but that's by the by. Just that's a realisation that hit me as a postgrad when I was get, doing that task. More interestingly, recently we've been hearing a lot about deep learning, and uh, deep learning really, to me, first caught my attention with the publication of a paper that made a lot of splash in the international media because what the scientists at Google and at DeepMind did was to present to this neural network lots and lots of images from the internet that were unlabeled, so they didn't say this isn't an image of a teapot, this is an image of a country, lots and lots of unlabeled data. And the network, after time, began to reliably identify images of cats from non-cats. Wow, this is the you know, neural network taught for itself and learned for itself what a cat is, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it would have been an amazing thing because it would have had deep philosophical importance because there's a philosophical, uh, an unanswered philosophical uh, uh, question uh, if you study philosophy, which is on what's called the existence of natural kinds. If I say to you when you entered the, uh, this meeting room earlier today, I got, there are two kinds of objects in this room, objects that lay less than one kilogram and objects that weigh one kilogram or more. Mm -hmm. Instances of that object, so my cup weighs less than a kilo, this table weighs more, These, they do not form a natural kind because the, the, the class I've specified is completely arbitrary. Mm -hmm. I could have said objects that weigh less than 10 grams or 20 tons. It's, there's nothing in nature that would correspond to those kinds. Yeah. That's an, an arbitrary kind, a non-natural kind, paradigmatically. The question for philosophers is, do there exist natural kinds that, that make a kind without there being, that aren't in some way contingent on the human observer? Is there a natural kind that might correspond to the set of humans, for example, or elephants, mm -hmm. or chairs? And this is a big, deep, unanswered question. Well, of course, were, if Google's result had been completely thorough and true, that would be at least some evidence, empirical evidence, that would suggest that there are natural kinds, because this network would have worked out the natural kind of cats, and what's what would be able to identify yeah. from photographs instances of the natural kind of cats without humans being in the loop. So it would have been a really, uh, not just a technical uh, result, and, and, and a result of incredible technical importance, but it would have had deep philosophical resonance as well. However, not long after that paper was published, another group of scientists from Google published a follow-up paper where they said, give me a deep learning neural network that's learned, say, to recognize images of cats and non-cats, and I can perturb an input image that the network correctly classifies as a cat, doing it in a very delicate way that to the human observer makes no indiscernible difference to the image. But we can guarantee, cast iron guarantee, that that neural network will now not classify that as a cat. So whatever the hell that deep learning network was doing, it wasn't learning 
in the way that my daughter learns images from mm-hmm. cartoons. If I gave my daughter an image of a cat and perturbed it imperceptibly, even now, just over two and a bit, she'd still recognise it as an image of a cat. But we can engineer things with a Google Deep Learning network that it cannot do that. So again, I just think these, these examples serve to uh, remind us to exercise a little bit of critical judgment and scepticism when we hear claims about what machines can and can't do. Yeah. And whether these machines are doing anything akin to what we would say is learning in humans. Yeah. I prefer that um, uh, the task, the, the idea, the, the, the name, sorry, things like function optimization personally rather than learning, machine learning. I, I, I worry that these terms are, are disingenuously used to try and Bring about it, yeah to bring about certain intuitions in the in the in the man or woman in the street about what's going on. So if someone says, "Oh, this is a learning machine." People immediately think, well, start to think about their ability at learning, and then begin to map on some of their assumptions about their learning onto the machine. I think if we use a more neutral term, that people would be less inclined to do yeah, that. Yeah. So it's not learning in any. In my view, it's not learning. Uh, Wittgenstein gave a great example that I think really hits the nail on the head. Actually, I, I take that back. I can't remember whether it was Wittgenstein or not. But it's a famous philosophical example that relates to work from Wittgenstein in his philosophical investigations text to do with the difference between acting in accordance with the rule and rule following. If you think about the planets as they orbit the sun, we can describe their motions using Kepler's laws. So they act in accord with Kepler's laws. You cannot say that the planets follow Kepler's laws in the same way that if you're living in the UK, you follow the law to drive on the left-hand side of the road. I suppose in that sense, if you're following it, it requires a degree of understanding understanding and an ability not to follow it mm. there's a certain normative element about this which is absolutely lacking in the planet's motions around the sun mm. and in my view absolutely lacking about any computer program mm. computer program has no option computer has no option other than to follow the program it's given with the input data it's acting on it can't suddenly decide if, it, if you tell a computer to say print out two plus three it can't wake up one day and decide to say 77 barring some uh, uh, hardware malfunction, modulo some hardware, if the computer's working correctly, it has to say two plus three is five, and it has no option but to do that yeah. in the same way the planets have to have their orbits described by Kepler's laws. Mm. So there's, there's no agency there, there's no, there's no choice. There's no choice, there's no free will, there's no rule following in that rich sense of the word. And without that sense of rule following in the rich sense of the word, that ability to learn in that rich sense of the word, it isn't clear to me that machines do any learning at all. Mm. Furthermore, I think in human learning, certainly my own learning, if I reflect back on, on big moments in my intellectual life, when they're akin to the famous penny dropping. I can remember as a, 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 I did moderately well at maths at school and I remember sitting through some maths classes and we had to do basic integration and differentiation at secondary school. And there are various formulae that you need to learn to do basic differentiation. And if you apply the formulae and turn the handle away correctly, you'll get the right answer and you get a tick. You can get machines to do that. 
Um, and I did it like a machine, and I scored 10 out of 10 in my homeworks. I didn't understand what I was mm. doing. Then one day, in one of the classes, I suddenly worked out, ding, why that had to be that way. Mm. And I can remember this almost like a kid, the proverbial flash. Mm. And that sort of moment, it felt like something. Yeah. There was what we call technically a phenomenological component to that understanding. When I grasped that mathematical truth as to why things had to be that way, it felt differently than my behaviour just going, turning the handle and just acting like an automaton, like a machine, yeah. still getting the right behaviour but not understanding what I was doing. So learning to me has this, as well as having the potential when you're learning to get things wrong, there's this phenomenological component of learning, the feeling yeah, yeah. That, is, that is utterly absent in, in machine learning as such. Yeah. And so to me it's a bastardization and a disingenuous bastardization that people who in my opinion really ought to know better. I don't, as I said, I don't think it's accidental that these terms are used. Sadly, it's the case in academia these days now that to get on, you've got to be getting big grants and publishing widely. And if people think you've got a machine that can really do learning when they're reviewing your grant, you know, even these little things, they perhaps people will feel more warmly towards your application. I, I just worry when people use these anthropomorphic terms, yeah. in my opinion, ill-advisedly. So what, what might you say to someone that says perhaps this is just a semantic difference um, and that really we don't, it doesn't, it doesn't need to have this, the feeling of understanding yeah. Yeah, yeah. as long as it just, well, it's beautiful. as long as it just works. Well, the, the first time I was ever on the radio, I think it was in 2002 on the Today programme, so it was a baptism of fire, live radio, it goes out to what, 8, 10 million people, it was quite a large audience, I don't know how many, and I was with my head of department at the time, because even then, I was, people knew me as a sceptic on AI. My head of department was a guy called, lovely guy, called Kevin Warwick, who was equally well, or much more, much better known as a guy who was one of the earliest people who was saying, look out, be warned, machines might take over. There's a real danger of having uh, machines that are that cleverer than humans. The people, humanity ought to wake up. And that was uh, in broad brushstrokes, Kevin's position at the time. And Kevin famously said in this interview something like, you know, if something walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, then by God, as far as I'm concerned, it's a duck. In other words, you don't really need to take these philosophical niceties too much at hand. And he said famously, you know, what do you mean by this consciousness? What's that got to do with anything? And I went, slap. Now that, if someone says to me, like, which Kevin did, I don't understand what you mean by consciousness. And I, if, you, if I was to slap you on the mm -hmm. face, which... Thankfully for you, I can't reach easily. <laughs> there is a raw sensation that that slapping motion invokes, mm. and we call I call that the phenomenal component of consciousness. We can also think of consciousness in terms of like. And so, to, so to fully to fully know what a slap is, well, not just know what it is, but to feel it. There's that the, you've the, got to know what the feeling is. Of, not just know what it is, but experience it. I'm getting out yeah. not the knowing of. Yeah. I could abstractly know that if someone slaps me. They, they feel something, but that's a distinct piece of knowledge than the experiential sensation. I'm talking about this, the feeling of yeah, being slapped, yeah. the feeling of smelling beautiful scent of a rose or seeing the ineffable red of a rose for that matter. So these are the raw sensations. And I think, 
and I'm not alone in this, that the phenomenological component of, this, uh, of understanding is, is something that's central to our human notion of learning and understanding. So to give you another example that's very dear to my heart, Again, with a toddler, I can, this might happen in a couple of years' time. Uh, certainly, I, I, I've been to many adult um, uh, uh, dinner parties where people have told risque jokes. Sometimes you might see a young child there, uh, five or six years old, who might join in laughing when all the adults are laughing at some risque joke, even though you know damn well the child hasn't understood the joke. So their external behaviour is one of ha ha ha. Yeah. But you know they haven't really understood the joke at all. They haven't got that phenomenal. They haven't grasped the joke. Yeah. Uh, and I think that particular example, if we get to talk on the Chinese room, has uh, very strong resonances in my own particular position on John yeah. Searle's Chinese room. So it's going through the motions of it, but there's nothing. There's, there's no missing. internal. There's no internal sort of reality there. You know, there's no, no internal feeling. There's no. There's no internal understanding. There's no. The, the phenomenal, to be technical, the phenomenological component of understanding is missing in the mechanical mm. sense. So I would argue, in contrast to Kevin, that just because something looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, they are, that is, they are necessary but not sufficient grounds for granting duckiness to an object. Mm. Now, Anders Slomberg, um, who's uh, a professor at the Future Humanity Institute, he's of the opinion. Um, you know that it is like the duck if it's quacking like one looking like one then perhaps it is he's of the opinion that it, that it doesn't matter about this experiential uh, phenomenon you know appreciation um, that as long as it works it just works but you really think that's a fundamental well it depends it. if I'm an engineer and I want to build uh, a, 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 a duck-like replica for use in some feature film I couldn't give a monkey's whether it fit. In fact, I'd rather the thing didn't feel so I could smash it up and blow it up without feeling guilty. So I think, you know, there are engineering constraints. When I'm engineering a solution to a problem, these philosophical issues are of no interest to me whatsoever. When we look at deep issues about whether machines are as intelligent as humans, whether machines understand what they're doing in any way akin to the understanding that humans have, whether machines can ever be conscious, whether machines will ever be super intelligent, then I think these issues are really, really important. Mm -hmm. And they're not, we're not arguing about the number of angels on the head of a pin. These are fundamental issues. For example, um, if you believe that a machine is genuinely intelligent in the same way, and in a more advanced way perhaps than a human, but at least in the same way, if not more advanced way, if you genuinely believe a machine can be autonomous, if you genuinely believe a, a machine can be conscious, then if you engineer, say, a robot car along those lines, and it has an accident, then I think you've got a prima facie case for saying the responsibility for that accident lies with the machine. The machine is, is, uh, is an ethical decision maker. It has some agency. It has some agency. And you should begin to think, oh, perhaps I should sue that machine in some weird parallel universe. If you think that's a load of nonsense, you've got to start thinking about who to blame in, uh, for such an accident in a very, very different way. So these have real implications now as we're beginning to license autonomous yeah. cars. And we, we are there right now. Aren't yeah. We? Now, I think, thankfully, very few people, I'm not aware of any lawmakers who think that it, when, not if, but when one of these autonomous vehicles is involved in a fatal accident, 
Uh, I'm not aware of anyone saying that the, the, the family of that person should then try to claim, sue that, that the car or try to get money back from the car. Um, nearly everyone is looking at this as like a very complicated tool that mm. seems to be the way that people are resolving these yeah. issues around urgency and intelligence. So I these issues are live. That's a, I would disagree with your colleague who felt that they're of no import. I think they're absolutely of import in certain classes of questions. If you just want to design a machine to do something, then I could totally concede that whether or not it's conscious or feels mm. may well, depending on your application, be utterly irrelevant. Yeah. And these are very, very real. I, I read just this morning that statistically, we're due to have the first driverless car accident very imminently, perhaps in, in the next couple of days, apparently. <laughs> I can't remember where the source of this came from. Um, I'd be surprised <laughs> if they could predict as accurately as the next couple of days. I mean, all well, the that that Google have been fielding their autonomous car in America for several years now. It's only had a handful of very mm. minor accidents. Mm. And I, I think the point of the article is just that we're due a death. So that is, this is something that we really do need yeah, to Yeah, I mean, again, I would argue, because in that sense, an autonomous car is no different from a, from a, a complicated aeroplane. These are hugely complicated bits of machinery that are engineered by humans, and humans are fallible, and there sure as hell will be some situation that people haven't appropriately considered in their, mm. in their design and implementation or some bug that will inevitably, at some point, uh, rear its ugly head and an accident will happen. Yeah. That said... The evidence so far is that I, I'm very happy to think that autonomous cars are nearly certainly going to be a damn sight safer than human-driven cars, because mm -hmm. the, the evidence is already that they are, I mean, the evidence on the Google cars is incredibly safe. I suppose, with all this, it's kind of going a bit off from my questions, but it's interesting over there. We get on to all this sort of, sort of philosophical thinking that we really have to either like program into these autonomous vehicles the choice, say, between swerving and and running over a child mm. or hitting the wall and mm. killing the entire uh, I mean I know you're throwing this to me because it's an example of what's called the philosophical trolley problem I'm guessing that's where you're coming from yeah where you had in historical literature and philosophy a, a very big thought experiment where there's a, tra a loose train a driverless train going down the track and there's a uh, a fork in the railroad and a human's by the fork and on the one fork there's somebody strapped down. If you if you move the train to go that way, it'll run the person over, but eventually it will uh, it will come to a halt, and that'll be the end of it. If you you pull the lever, and the train will not run the person over, it will go straight into a wall, for example, and anybody who's in one of the carriages behind may well be injured or killed. So what does the, what should the human who's manning the uh, the, the switch do? Um, yeah, the designers of, of autonomous vehicles will have to think about mm. these issues. Interestingly enough, an ex-colleague of mine, in, I used to be the chair of the what's called the AISB, the Association for Artificial Intelligence and the Simulation of Behaviour, which is the oldest such scientific society in the world. And one of my colleagues on there, Louise Dennis, this is really her area of expertise, and she's published a paper uh, towards approvably correct robot ethics which is an amazing, interesting paper. And uh, uh, with with deference to Louise, if, I, if I'm gonna summarize it slightly inaccurately, but to my, from memory, what Louise was show, <coughs> showing in this paper is how given a certain set of actions that are, that are available to a system, so there's a finite set of actions, and given a certain moral framework, so utilitarianism, 
we can prove Louisa method guarantees that the robot will do the will pick the action that will best maximise the ethical choice given that overarching moral framework. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's very difficult to think of what the overarching moral framework would be in a, in a classical philosophical trolley problem or the one that you described, and that's why these are these are difficult tasks to yeah. to, to implement and to talk about. Um, but I think Louise's just work is one example of where progress is being made towards getting engineering solutions to those difficult moral um, choices. Well, it's good to know people are thinking. About it. <laughs> okay, so um, absolutely fascinating conversation. I should say. Um, just getting back to some of the, some of the questions I have. Um, just very simply, could we just sort of define where, what everyday applications of AI do we come across? What you know. I think it's very. Uh, can I tell you an everyday application of AI that we've been engaged in? To flag out, to fly our flag at the Tungsten Centre for Intelligent Data Analytics for a moment. We've been involved. A group of our team have been involved for the last last year on a, on a really kind of problem. That's one of these AI problems that you think is so trivial it must have been solved already and cannot possibly involve very much intelligence. But it turns out not to have been solved yet and to be a very difficult. Uh, question to uh, address and that's addresses um, when uh, whenever you enter a, an entity into a, a human entity into a database or a company or something like that you will need to certainly associate if it's a medical record of a human their address if it's uh, uh, information on a company their address company's address, if it's a product where they can buy that from, which might involve an address. Really fundamental to many, many commercial problems is the idea yeah. of, of looking at addresses and what addresses are. And if you're merging two different data sets, how, how can you guarantee that addresses, one data set can be merged accurately with addresses in another? If, you're, if you've got some new input data that's been entered into a computer by a human, uh, how can you get that data into your database in, in, in a reliable way so the data is entered in the correct fields? How do you read an address from an envelope that's being posted in a, in a reliable way? How can you get the postal address off that very, very reliably? Um, and we've been working on this problem for a while. We think we've got a very good solution to it that, that's better than anything else that, we've, we've been, that, that we're aware of. And the ubiquity of this problem really hit me when I, I was invited to Whitehall to talk about what I thought this sector would be spending most of its first year working on, but we actually haven't done much in this area so far. And that's the big problem of data analytics. So that's what my invitation was to go and chat to mm. uh, the ministers and what have you and civil servants about analytics. And I spent nearly all my time talking about addresses because every person I spoke to from every different department the idea of cleaning up addresses on databases was completely common. Everybody I spoke to had, had tried to do this, is if, and it's absolutely not not easy. Yeah. Is it? Is this because simply for the for the fact where you have address line one two three four, people put them in wrong like, orders? Yeah, wrong orders. Yeah, it's not always entirely clear if they're asking for a flat number first or yeah, a house name first. Absolutely. So you've got people entering the data wrongly. If it's been transcribed, people do typos. You've got logical problems like if you come across London in an address. If you see that as an ad- uh, uh, in England, that's 
you may think that's referring to the city of London. If you file it in an address that's otherwise pointed to Scotland, it might be a road. Yeah. So, for example, London Street yeah. in Scotland, yeah. London City. So, disambiguating what these terms are. It's incredibly complicated. So, you can get bodge yeah. solutions to this problem that work quite well. And they've been around for years. I thought the problem had been completely solved, but, it, but I don't think it has. And we've been looking at doing a very, very, very good solution to that using some really complicated AI. And uh, we think we've made great progress in that for our commercial sponsors. So that's an example well, of a really, really problem that you you might not even think it'd be a problem for computers yeah. dealing with addresses, but it is a bloody difficult problem. Yeah, and we yeah. have to use a lot of AI to make real headroad, headway in that solution. Wow. So, you know, the average person on the street, such as myself, would never c- no. think... It's like, it's like you know, <laughs> recognising that as a cup in the 60s. People didn't think that involved intelligence. It's just easy. Yeah, yeah. People didn't think dealing with addresses on a computer would be different. Yeah. just trivial. Well, it's trivial to do it in a bodged kind of way, but to do it reliably accurately is absolutely yeah. not trivial at all. So, uh, compared to a human's... Um the, the way that a human might look at particular problems and classify them as being difficult or easy, mm. it's almost inverse for a computer system. The things that we find very easy, easy to yeah. do yeah. for a computer are incredibly difficult. Can be incredibly difficult, yeah. And the, they're the very difficult computations that we find, I particularly yeah, exactly. am not very good at maths. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but computers yeah. find very easy. Yeah, you can actually get not just arithmetic, which we can get, we've had calculators that can do arithmetic for a long time now, but now, Packages like Mathematica, you can get computer aided maths systems that can do real, genuine, fairly complicated um, algebras, mm. uh, algebraic manipulations. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, that most people would find doing that difficult, I certainly mm. do, but computers can do that damn well. Mm. Most people can understand an address trivially to the extent they wouldn't think it involves any intelligence yeah. at all. That, I can assure you, is a very, very difficult yeah, problem. Yeah, sure, sure. So, it's, it's, it's really in a, I mean, it's very visible at the moment insofar as we have personal assistants we have obviously google itself the way that it looks Absolutely. through information and we one of the things we've been benchmarking our systems on and addressing is what google can do and yeah. again again just to show you how difficult it is google can't do addresses very well yeah, yeah. Well, i know i use it a lot for my meetings my various interviews and stuff yeah and it's uh, it's not entirely great no, no, no. yeah and no no one's really cracked that we, yeah. we haven't done it 100 percent, but we've got we're getting in the very high 90 percent yeah, yeah. So it really is sort of in encroaching on most aspects of our lives now, you know, it's in, well, in a very is, obvious right, way. I like right. to bring things back to philosophy because I think philosophy depends everything when you talk about AI. And you've raised there, by a chance or by design, I don't know, a very, very interesting question. When we think about uh, the future of AI, there are two, I see there are two big problems that we need to think about. One is, can all the tasks that humans do can we engineer a computer solution for those tasks and the other is uh, can if we could if we can do that, that's an open question I would say still at the moment but I think my intuition is probably most if not all but my intuition is probably most tasks that humans do we'll be able to get an engineering solution for and many people would say all I'm slightly ambivalent about that, but I'm happy to say most. But it'd be a real pain if every time we got a, we got a, the, the bore is the engineer a particular solution to a particular task. 
So what many, well, what a group of people in AI are working towards is called the concept of artificial general intelligence. Can we get a system that can you, you, you engineer it in such a way that it can apply knowledge from one domain seamlessly into another in this kind of way that humans so there are two open questions there. One, can every problem that we that humans do be computerized? Secondly, can the generality of human problem solving be generalized? And I would argue both of those are open questions. Mm. Um, uh, and I'm I have some skepticism on both of them. Okay. So um, we seem to have a, a sort of division between narrow, very particular intelligence, winning at a game of chess, mm -hmm. um, etc. And this broad, general or human sort of level intelligence, which is maybe a common sense kind of... Well, not thing. just human level intelligence. Human type intelligence. Because uh, we can have human level intelligence of playing chess, human level intelligence yeah. of driving a car. The human flexibility, if you like, yeah. so that we can transfer across from one domain to another without being explicitly reprogrammed. Mm -hmm. So, so I, th I think you've described the differences pretty well there. Um, what's so difficult about engineering a general intelligence? Right. I, my suspicion is that general intelligence fundamentally involves understanding in a very deep way. So when I'm engineering a duck for a part in a, a bit part in a film uh, as a film extra, whether that duck robot feels anything like it is to be a duck is absolutely irrelevant. If I want to design something that's going to be a more general duck in many different situations, then you know it may be important that that thing actually feels fear when it sees a big, I don't know, duck predator <laughs> coming on the horizon, whatever a suitable duck predator might be. Um, so, in general, I think that when we're we're trying to apply knowledge from one domain to another, I think it's it's we really have to have to have a very deep level of understanding about that domain. It's much harder if we only have this superficial uh, wheel uh, cog turning understanding of it, in quotes understanding of, inte of, uh, of intelligence. So. Um, a mathematician's got a very deep understanding of, for example, arithmetic can, is likely to be able to apply arithmetic in many more different domains than a four-year-old child who can do two, two, four, six, eight. Similarly, a mathematician who understands what differentiation and integration are on a deep level probably do a lot more with the concepts than someone from secondary school who's just learned by rote to manipulate um, formula in a certain prescribed way go on to advanced maths and the same argument applies again. And I think that mathematical angle can be taken over any domain. So the more you genuinely understand a domain, I think the more then you might be able to see to apply that knowledge in different domains. Mm. Just by having a superficial hand-turning appreciation of something, I think, I think makes it more harder to, to apply that knowledge successfully elsewhere. Mm. So that's one concern. And we're not saying these are knock-down, irrefutable points. These are just grounds for my scepticism, yeah. if you like. So that's to, just to sum, summarise, so you're saying w one of the big challenges to general intelligence is that... Um, is genuine understanding as no one So, for example, yeah. let's look at the AlphaGo programme that recently beat Lee C. Dole and became the strongest Go-playing entity on the planet. That machine didn't know it was playing Go. 
I had no idea it was playing go. Uh, 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 this was this was really brought to the foreground in, in, for me in a, in a book called Understanding Computers and Cognition by Flores and Winograd, classic book from about 10, 20 years ago. And they talked about chess computers and they looked, if you remember from the 70s, you had these plastic little chess computer systems that had, uh, uh, had the little plastic chess pieces on little holes on a board mm -hmm. and little lights and when the human made a move and moved a piece from one place to another where it was allowed to move and the computer could sense when a piece was ticking because you pulled it out of the hole to lift it up you plugged it into a different hole on the board to place the piece and the computer could detect that so it then worked out where the pieces were on the board and it then lit up where it wanted the piece moving from to where it wanted the piece moving to. Now, if a human who knows the rules of chess had one of those toys, like I did, and I was around 10 or whatever, I could use that toy to play chess against. Mm. If a human who didn't know the rules of chess, say a six-year-old or a four-year-old, they could use that to put bits of plastic in and make weird patterns of bits of plastic. What they wouldn't be doing is playing chess against it, even though the chess computing algorithm was carrying on interacting with the the, the, the the child who didn't know the rules of chess mm. or given we're at goldsmiths there's a lot of work going on at art at goldsmiths if you can imagine taking the inputs to that chess toy and wiring them up to pressure pads on the floor taking the outputs and wiring them up to huge big neons putting the whole caboodle in an art gallery as people walk over the uh, the floor pads that will cause certain lights to cut neons to come on and off in the art gallery. Now the same computer program is running in all three of those cases. Once when I'm using it as a knowledgeable chess player to play chess against. Second time when a six-year-old child who doesn't know the rules of chess is just using it to cause lights to come on and off or to make pretty patterns with the plastic on the on the bit of equipment. And the third time when the artists are using it to control a set of neon lights. Mm. The reason being that the machine had no idea it was playing chess. All it's doing is manipulating ones and noughts very, very, very fast. Well, technically, five volt plus or minus, uh, typically three point five, five volt, forty levels and volt levels in on its circuitry. So it did not know it was playing chess. The AlphaGo program did not know it was playing Go. Now, without that knowledge that you're playing Go, how the heck could such a system hope to apply? skills learned. It didn't even know when they were winning or losing. The machine's just manipulating ones and knots. A human had to decide, well, that's a winning position, and it announced that the machine didn't. It might have reached a terminating state, but it didn't know that it had won. Mm. So the machine didn't know it had won, it didn't know it was playing Go. On what possible grounds have you got for thinking and then apply that knowledge to a totally different problem domain when it didn't know what the hell it was doing in the first place? Mm. So this, this is my second big ground scepticism about artificial general intelligence. The machines do not know the semantics of the syntax they're so adroitly manipulating. Mm -hmm. The human users of the system do, but the system itself ontologically doesn't know. Yeah. And this, I think, is really brought to the fore in, in Searle's Chinese room argument. I don't know whether we've got time to go into that. Could you very quickly explain the Chinese room argument? I promise. I'd love to. I think this really, to me, this is. There are three. There are many arguments that, to me, suggest humans. What the human intellect and human cognition is is not uh, instantiable by the execution of any computer program. And the three that appeal most to me 
are the Penrose-Lucas argument that suggests that mathematical insight is not computable. My own minor contribution that suggests that I call dancing with pixies as a reductio ad absurdum argument that I think shows that computers can't be conscious unless absolutely everything, this cup of tea or chair that I'm sitting on is conscious. And for me, the most beautiful of these arguments is John Searle's Chinese room argument. And this runs like this. In the late 70s, from memory, Searle was a kind of a guest, I think, in, one, in an AI lab. He was certainly walking around in an AI lab and he got chatting and talking to people who were involved with Shank and Abelson's work on the, in quotes, understanding of stories. Champion Nelson had written some software or their grad students and research associates had um, based on ideas they had to do with things called scripts uh, and, and the claim was I don't think it's a claim that Champion Nelson explicitly made but their postgrad certainly did that for the first time we had machines that understood stories now when we say stories we're not talking about war and peace we're talking of stories of the form Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Mm. And the sort of question you could do is, does Jack believe in a god? What's Jack's opinion about the start of the universe? Nothing quite like that. The sort of questions you could put to the system were, who went up the hill? And it would reply, quick as a flash, Jack and Jill went up the hill. Why did Jack go up the hill? To get a pail of water. Mm. That's the sort of dialogue you could have. Mm. And the claims coming out of those labs that Searle was exposed to were for the first time here we had machines that genuinely understood the story and Searle thought this was ridiculous. And he then came up with a Chinese room argument to show why he thought these machines had no understanding at all. Searle imagined himself locked in a room and it's a room in China and Outside of that room were obviously a huge nation of Chinese-speaking and literate people. In the room were three piles of paper on which were inscribed strange squiggles and squoggles. Searle's a monoglot English speaker. He wasn't even aware that these symbols were actually ideographs of Chinese. They were just squiggles and squ uninterpreted squiggles and squoggles. Also in the book was a massive tome and this tome had lots and lots of rules saying if you see a squiggle followed by a squoggle, a squiggle on pile one and a squiggle on pile two, put a squiggle squabble symbol on pile three. So lots of rules of that form. And they would sometimes say take a symbol from, pile uh, from one of the piles from pile three say, and stick it through a letterbox to people in the outside world. And so I got to following these rules and manipulating these uninterpreted squiggles goals in these three different piles. And after a while, he got very, very good and reliable at doing this. And every now and again, he keep passing symbol, well, squiggles out to people in the outside world through the letterbox. Would it be nice to sell the squiggles on pile in on pile one defined were actually ideographs in Chinese that defined a story. Pile two, the symbols in pile two corresponded to a script and the symbols in pile three corresponded to uh, answers to questions in the story in, uh, in Chinese. So when Searle was following these rules, he was acting like a computer program following, following the rules. He was giving people in the outside world answers to their questions in, in Chinese. 
And these answers were, because the program was really well written, were actually indistinguishable from those a native Chinese person might give. From the perspective of the people outside the room, they've given this room story in Chinese and questions about that story, and they're getting supplied back answers to their questions that are indistinguishable from those a native Chinese person might give. From their perspective, it almost seems like this room, this, this room understands Chinese. But Searle trenchantly points out that no matter how often and how reliably he does this rule following, he hasn't got a clue that he's, even, that he's A, answering questions, or even that he's answering questions about a story in Chinese. All he's doing is mindlessly manipulating uninterpreted squiggles and squabbles. Mm. Absolutely no understanding. No understanding there at, at all. all. Yeah. Now to really flesh this out, there's a, there's a whole literature, academic literature about the Chinese Room article, and, and to which I've contributed to in the in the context of a, of a book of edited stories by leading philosophers and cognitive scientists, a book called Views into the Chinese Room from 2002. But I think Searle really brings the the, the, the the story to a head with the following example. You can see why there's a difference if we. If we imagine Searle being given, uh, given questions in Chinese and responding with symbols to the outside world to answers uh, to those questions about a story in Chinese, and we consider that example, and then we consider the case where Searle is given uh, a, f a joke in English. So in one sense you can imagine Searle being presented with a joke, a funny story in Chinese, in another sense he's, he's given a joke in English. Now, assuming Searle's got a sense of humour, which having met him, I can guarantee you he has, in the English-speaking case, there'll be a phenomenological component to him laughing. He will get the joke. He will find it funny. He's not just going ha-ha like a six-year-old might do to a joke that he or she doesn't get, an adult joke. He finds it funny. There's something it is like to find that joke funny. And that is distinct from the behaviour that Searle had when he responded with the symbols that correspond to ha-ha in Chinese, when he had no idea he was he was responding to a joke. He had no phenomenology of understanding, no phenomenology of humour or laughter. Mm. So I think there's an ontological, as Searle says, says the key, Searle's on record as saying the key problem with the Chinese room argument is that people conflate epistemic questions about knowledge with ontological questions about being. Uh, in the, in, we see in the case of Searle reacting to, question, to a joke in English and a joke in Chinese, that these two systems are totally different. Mm. One understands, and there's a feeling, a phenomenological component to that system that is utterly absent yeah. from the rule-following one. And you think that's a real block to us? Really Absolutely, because that, this is utterly general. Searle's rule book corresponds to any programme that could ever be written. Mm. Right? So people say, oh, I've got this new technique, this deep learning. You can still apply the Chinese room to yeah. a deep learning system. It doesn't understand anything. Yeah. So you don't think we're going to attain human general intelligence? Not this. by computations. I'm, I'm still a physicalist. I'm still a materialist. So I look to finding scientific explanations for consciousness and understanding and intelligence. But to me, whereas in the 60s people tried to abstract away from the material body in which we find ourselves interacting with the world, in a very kind of, ironically, a very kind of dualist way. So the AI scientists of the 60s thought they could get a, a program that would encapsulate mind, so they could abstract it from the messy, dirty body. You see this trope 
reinvent it. Half the time in Hollywood, where you see people like with the Matrix jacking the idea of jacking into a Matrix, mm. so that your mind wanders in the, mm. in the computational Matrix, which is utter nonsense in my opinion. It's very dualist and very religious, and again, I don't think it's, it's coincidental that in hard AI labs, the majority of people working them tend to be still, sadly, I wish there were more women, but they're still sadly tend to be mainly guys. Not just that they're guys, they literally to a man tend to be hardcore atheist guys. Yeah. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. As I said earlier, I haven't got a strong religious belief myself. But I think a lot of people, unfortunately, replace a, a, a sort through AI to replace a religious lack in their life with this nonsense notion mm. that we can somehow, in a very dualist way, abstract the essence of you into a computer program and make you live forever in some silicon heaven. So you think our intelligence is really intrinsically linked to our body? I'm a materialist. Yeah. My mind yeah, yeah. is fitted in my body. Yeah. It's fundamentally an embodied thing. My cognition of the world is contingent on my brain, my body, my environment, and then most important of all, not my one, but very important, our culture. Mm. Some beautiful, as I wrote Carl Smith, I'll, I'll just wrap this up, with some beautiful work from a colleague of mine, a girl, called Jules Davidoff on perception of colour. I don't know that Jules would make these claims of his results, but I'm going to stick my neck out and make, some, make them anyway. Jules did some work with the Himba tribe in Africa, and him and his postgrads did. And on how reliably they, they, they gave the people, these Himba subjects, a, 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 a sheet, and on this sheet were lots and lots of tiles of colours. In one sense, they, from memory, they were mainly green. And you have to say, what's the odd one out? And to a, a Westerner looking at these colour discs, it was not at all obvious what the odd one out was. And it took you ages to work it out, if you could get it at all. And there's quite a lot of error. People said, what the wrong one out was. It was a difficult task, it took a long time. And then there was another uh, chart with a load of greenness and a blue one. And of course the Westerners, poof, the blue one, milliseconds, reliably 100% of the time got the odd one out. The bizarre thing is the Himba, who have a different colour vocabulary to us, in other words, a different colour culture, they got the odd one out on the green instantaneously. They could see them, you could stick, mashing around with their hair with a stick, puzzled expressions on their faces, could not get the odd one out with the blue. Mm. I, I believe, following Sapir Wharf, that this is some, at least partial evidence that colour, that, sorry, that, in, that culture an environment shape our phenomenal perception of the world. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, so yeah, so to me, culture, environment, body, neurons, these are the things that bring forth our mind. The idea that we can abstract away from them is sheer science yeah. fantasy. Um, so the singularity is an idea that lots of people speak about, um, Nick Bostrom and co, and a super intelligence idea. Um, do you see this as being plausible at all? It's plausible, it's a very plausible idea. I mean, Stephen Hawkins is a, massive, a very clever guy, infinitely cleverer than I will ever be. So when you want to contradict Hawkins, you know you're on a risky ground. Now I've got to say, obviously what Hawkins said is, is utterly plausible, assuming one thing, and that's that everything about the human mind, intelligence and consciousness can be encapsulated by a suitable computer program. If that is the case, then I think Hawkins is right. Uh, and then I think warning some of them, Musk, even Hawkins, and my old uh, boss at Reading, Professor Kevin Warwick, warnings that we ought to take a bit seriously. Mm. 
there will be, it's inevitable. If everything about the human mind is computable, it is inevitable at some point in time, we will have an AI that will out outsmart humans on all tasks. So that's a very real risk, but it's contingent on that initial statement. But you don't think it's... I think there's a humanity gap. I think it will always be the case that what a human plus a computer can do will always be greater than what a computer can do on its own. For the reasons we spent the last two hours talking yeah, about. Fascinating. Okay. So what's the real take home just last message? What is this um whole thing about superintelligence, this iterative collection, you know, us endangering the species by creating the next species? Is that all science fiction to you? Uh no it's science fiction and unless we and, unless Hawkins is and 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 uh, colleagues are correct that all aspects of human Cognition and mind can be instantiated on a computer program. If, if they're right about that, then I think their warnings are hold. If they're wrong about that, then I think their warnings are misguided. Mm. I spent two hours trying to show you why I think they're wrong. So there you have it. I hope you'll agree that Professor Bishop makes some incredibly interesting points and his detailed knowledge of all things intelligence related make for truly awe-inspiring listening. Having widely published, he's produced a wealth of material that I'd really strongly urge you explore, particularly his TEDx talk, Robotics and Consciousness, available on YouTube, is absolutely fascinating. Next time round, we'll be continuing our focus on AI, so be sure to stay tuned for much, much more ponder-inducing stuff. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch as ever, send an email to contact.thinkpiece at gmail.com Find us on Facebook and Twitter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. And of course, remember to get sharing and liking and all that lovely stuff. So, thanks for listening and until next time, take care. Take care.